I invite you to open your Bibles to the end of what we call our New Testament, the New Covenant, to a small letter at the back, two written by the Apostle Peter, one Peter, two Peter, we call it First Peter. We are in a series in this small epistle, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This morning, we're going to be talking about the impact of godly people in a spiritually dark pagan culture. A classic example, I was working on this, and I came across an example from Australia. Uh, some of you may have heard of Tim Winton, maybe some of you haven't. He's one of Australia's superstar novelists, something akin to a John Grisham over here, or Tom Clancy, or a Mary Higgins Clark. A couple of years ago, he did an interview for ABC in Australia, a program called Enough Rope. And on that show, he shared a brief story of his life. He was raised in a non-Christian family. And as a young kid, his father was in a terrible automobile accident, was hit by a drunk driver, and ended up in the hospital for an extended period of time, and then finally was able to come home, but required around-the-clock care for a long time. And it was overwhelming the family. And then Tim said one day a neighbor came over and ended up being a professing Christian, started helping out, and then became a regular caregiver for Tim's dad for an extended period of time. And it turns out, as a professing Christian, uh, not only evangelizing in words, but by his life, Tim says that individual had a huge impact on their entire family coming to faith in Christ. That is exactly what Peter is talking about here. And somebody talked to me on the way out after the first service, shared a very similar story about the impact of a godly life. We are in a series, if you've not been with us, in this short letter, First Peter, very short letter, only 105 verses, brimming with the theme of hope. Who doesn't need that theme in their life? Hope. And today we come to a section that describes how a true Christian, a true born-again blood-bought, converted person, someone who has the Holy Spirit alive in them, that when they are living a godly life can have a massive impact on the world right around them, at school, in the marketplace, in their neighborhood, wherever the impact that their lives will take them. To do that, Peter's going to issue two commands. This is a very straightforward passage. If you're not with us on a regular basis, our question is always to go to the Scriptures and ask, what did the Scriptures say? What has God said? What does the text say? And here we see two very direct commands that tie right into a godly life having an impact. So we'll dive into those. If you have an outline and you were handed, you'll see the two. Number one, abstain from sinful desires. That's in 11 and 12. And then the second direct command, imperative verbs, Verbs of command, submit to authority. There's a word Americans love to hate, submit. But here it is in the text. So first of all, the first command Peter issues, if you know Christ as Savior, young people, kids, adults, if you know Jesus, if you claim him as Lord, the first command here, if we're going to have a significant impact beyond just our words, is abstaining from sinful desires. I'm going to read verses 11 and 12 and then make some comments. Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, that could be spiritually speaking, it also could be the fact that he's writing to believers, a lot of them displaced, but this is in modern day Turkey, 
That's where a lot of these believers were. There were some former Jews, a lot of Gentiles here. To abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And then this next verse is kind of the theme verse for this section. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, verse 11 opens a new section about the behavior of believers and how it impacts those around him. And the first thing Peter does is he summons those who truly know Christ. I know not everyone here does, but if you know Jesus is Lord, if you profess him, if you've been born again by his Holy Spirit, here is a direct summons that we are to abstain from. It says here in the NIV, New International Version, abstain from sinful desires. Some of you know this was not written in English. It was originally penned in Greek under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word used, translated sinful, is simply a word that either can mean sinful or some translations translate it passions of the flesh, Old English, fleshly desires. The, the problem with the word is it sounds like it's only targeting sins of sexual nature. And it certainly is targeting that. But it's a much broader term in biblical theology. Let me give you a classic example. Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21, the same Greek word is used, but listen to Paul's definition of sins of the flesh. This is Galatians 5, 19 to 21. The sins of the flesh are obvious. So here it goes. And Paul loves lists. He always is using lists in his writings. Sins of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, that certainly is included. Impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So you can see it's a very broad speaking category. It's not just targeting sexual sins, although they are certainly targeted. Paul continues, I warn you as I did before, those who live like this, I mean, that's the pattern of their life, any of those sins he mentioned, that's the pattern of your life. Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, just as a reminder, because a lot of us know our culture and we think, boy, this is, how could it get any darker? Reminder that the first century Christians Peter's writing to, again, lived in what we call modern day Turkey, it was called Asia Minor back then. But it was a very dark place spiritually. It was a dark piece of real estate. It was not a spiritually thriving area. It was known for all kinds of things. Polytheism, the worship of multiple gods and demons. Sex cults, Gnostic cults, New Age cults, slavery, emperor worship, pagan religions. It was a culture that most historians tell us was even more openly depraved, decadent, and corrupt than American culture. And yet, in that culture, Peter is telling these early Christians to be serious about holiness. That it doesn't matter what the culture's like around us. That the real issue is what's going on inside us. Last week, Pastor Marty filled in for me. And he used a quote, I'm paraphrasing him, but I love the way he phrased it because it captures what Peter's doing in his letter, and especially in this section. Pastor Marty said, Peter's not only concerned about the darkness around us. That's what a lot of us focus on a lot, is the darkness around us. But he said, Peter is even more concerned 
about the darkness inside of us. And that's something we often forget. And that is worth quoting. That's why Pastor Marty emphasized it a couple times last week. And I told Becky, I said, we gotta, I got to bring that up again. That's a great summary of what Peter's doing. There is a concern about the darkness around us. But Peter doesn't spend a lot of time exegeting and dissecting the culture around them. He'll mention it. He focuses on the darkness inside of us, even a believer, a genuine believer, and the need to kill sin and root that out of our lives. And so that is a good summary, which means, very simply, young people hear this, holiness is a big deal. It's not a minor thing. Holiness is a big deal. Integrity, obedience as a professing Christian is a big deal in God's eyes. And one of the key reasons is because when true Christians are holy, not only does it benefit their lives and their church, but it speaks volumes to a non-Christian world and those watching them and has a huge impact on their lives. Again, verse 12 is the key verse here. Live such good lives among the pagans. And plug in your context, whether it's school, marketplace, neighborhood, extended family. You may have an extended family that's non-Christian. I talked to one person after the first service who was telling me that their spouse is not saved and that this really challenged them to make sure they're living a godly life in front of their non-Christian spouse. Same thing. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, and you will be accused of doing wrong even if you're living a righteous life, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. So this is another way to think about it. You can think about godliness, holiness, as a form of pre-evangelism. And even post-evangelism, because it goes with verbal proclamation. But in many ways, it is a form of pre-evangelism, meaning that when unbelievers watch a godly person, it prepares the way for the gospel. Let me give you some examples. When a teenager gets saved and quits sleeping with their boyfriend or their girlfriend, it has an impact. You better believe that has an impact. When a genuine believer says no to pornography, that has a huge impact. When a believer says no to raunchy jokes, foul language, carnal talk, has a big impact on those around him. When a true Christian refuses to cheat their customers, <laughs> that has a big impact. People notice, people are watching. When a true Christian chooses to forgive somebody who has hurt or wounded or betrayed or whatever, that has a huge impact because that is not the way of the world. And when a true Christian couple has a loving, godly marriage, ladies and gentlemen, it's no-brainer. That has a big impact. That has a huge impact. Now, this raises one other critical question before we go to his second command here today about authority. Here's the question. If watching godly lives has just a big impact, and if that's what Peter's emphasizing here, which he is, does this mean that, that lost sinners can simply watch somebody and come to faith purely by seeing their good deeds? Does this mean verbal proclamation of the gospel is not necessarily critical? Some of you may be familiar with St. Francis of Assisi. Years ago, someone gave me a plaque. You may have seen this saying before. It has a saying, preach the gospel always. Do you know the rest of it? If necessary, use words. 
I remember getting that and thinking, huh. Bounced it off a New Testament scholar one day in graduate school and got my answer, to which was the word basically, that's rubbish. <laughs> a nice concept. Here's the problem. Evangelism in the New Testament, evangelism period, is both verbal proclamation and a life that backs it up. There's no such thing as evangelism that's silent because some pagans live very good lives. Some non-Christians live very moral lives in worldly terms, in the world's terms. And so simply watching a good life does not communicate the full gospel. That's the problem. The Bible calls us to both our lives and our lips, both. In fact, if you turn over just one chapter to chapter 3, look at verse 15. These are intertwined for Peter. Not only does he emphasize the importance of our lives communicating the gospel and preaching the gospel, because you are preaching the gospel by a godly life. That is a form of preaching. It is a form of pre-evangelism. It reinforces evangelism. But chapter 3, verse 15, you come to one of the most famous verses when it comes to defending the faith. We call that apologetics. And Peter says this, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And then notice his wording. Always be prepared to give an answer. He's talking about verbal defense of the faith, verbal proclamation of the gospel. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. And do it with gentleness and respect. So the Bible calls us to command, I mean, it commands us evangelism with our lives and with our lips. Take either one away and you have an incomplete gospel. And so question this morning to you, to all of us, what is your life preaching right this minute? When it comes to how you handle your money, how you honor the Sabbath day, how you treat your spouse, how you're handling business transactions, whatever the issue, what is your life actually preaching right this minute? And that takes Peter now to his second command, if we're going to have an impact, and that is in verses 13 to 25, and that is this. Christians are commanded to submit to authority may not like the word, but that's what it is. And these are imperative verbs. They're just straight out commands. And he gives three examples. First one, we're called to submit to civil authorities. This raises all kinds of questions. I don't have time to address them all. I'll address a couple of today. But 13 to 17, let's see the command. Submit yourselves, again, he's talking to true Christians here, for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor fitting in light of yesterday's coronation, as the supreme authority or to the governors or who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong, to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Interesting wording. Show proper respect to everyone Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the king or honor the emperor. As I've noted, Peter's writing to those living in the Roman Empire. And just a reminder, they're not living under a democratically elected middle class president. That's not what's going on here. If you know your world history at this point, 
The Roman emperor of the day was one of the most vicious, depraved emperors there ever was. Nero, a wretched human being. If you want to know how wretched, all you got to do is buy Suetonius, the Roman historian's book, The Twelve Caesars. Go to the chapter on Nero. It's graphic. It's graphic. This was a wretched, wicked, depraved human being. And yet Peter is saying, you are in submission to him. If you're a believer, I mean, unbelievers are too, but he's reminding Christians, you're in submission. He does not advocate insurrection here. Now, obviously, this has led to lots of disagreements among Christians over the decades. And one of the questions is, well, is there a time to pick up arms and resist a corrupt leader? This is the whole question behind the American Revolution. I'm not going to address all that. Peter's answer, should you pick up arms and resist a corrupt leader, is no, but it's a qualified no. He is speaking in general terms. The Bible is clear that God is the one who puts world leaders in their places. He is the one who raises and deposes leaders, even corrupt, wicked leaders. Having said that, the Bible is also clear that there is a time if a king or an emperor or a governor or somebody commands us to do something that flatly violates God's law, that we are under an obligation not to comply. There is a very strong line of evidence in the Bible about civil disobedience, appropriate civil disobedience. And there's a number of examples in the Bible. Just think of Daniel or Esther or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or Peter or John when they were ordered by the Sanhedrin, stop preaching. And so they went out in the streets and started preaching again. (laughs) So there is a clear line of evidence of civil disobedience in the Bible. Having said that, Peter still issues his very strong command. Unless you are commanded to do something that directly violates the word of God, we are in submission, Christian or not, to those in authority and civil authority over us. Second command here is submit to others in authority over us. This would include a wide variety of people from employers to teachers to police officers to whomever. Verses 18 and 20. Slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable to God. Now remember, many of the slaves and servants Paul was writing to had non-Christian masters. And once again, just like he said, you're in submission to the emperor. He's saying here, even if your master, and there are some differences with slavery in the first century. I'm not, the point of this today is not to nuance all that. The point is to talk about relationships where there are others over us and we have, all of us have those in our lives. Even if they're unbelievers, even if your parents are not Christians, or your employer is not a Christian, or your supervisor is not a Christian, or whomever, your teacher, your principal, we're to be in submission to them. God has put authority in place. The whole realm of creation functions under authority. It cannot be but that. 
doesn't work when authority structures break down and all authority comes ultimately from God. That's Peter's whole point here. That's why this passage was so pivotal for the reformers and has so, been so pivotal in much civil theological thinking throughout church history because all authority does come from God. Third area where we're commanded and talked about in I summarize it under submit to God's authority, and here the example is Jesus, who submitted to the providence of God in his suffering, even though he had done nothing wrong. This is in verses 21 to 25. To this you were called, and now the example is Christ, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. So Christ suffered. Part of that was to leave us an example that we should follow in his steps. And then we're reminded he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So again, just because you're living a righteous life does not mean you will not be accused of wrongdoing, you will not suffer, you will not be persecuted. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he didn't issue threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And then we get a couple quotations from the prophet Isaiah chapter 53, that great gospel chapter in the Old Testament. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So what these verses show us is that Jesus submitted and trusted in God's providence even when God appointed suffering and martyrdom. And it's important to remember in Isaiah 53, we are told it was the father's pleasure to crush his son. I have a sermon I preached years ago called, Who Really Killed Jesus? Was it the Roman authorities? Was it the Jewish authorities? Yes and yes. But the real reason goes back to that was his father's plan. The father killed the son. If we don't understand it was the father who killed the son, ultimately, we do not understand a biblical theology of the atonement and a biblical Christology. So these verses show us Jesus submitting to God's providence, even in his suffering. And then they end here with verses 24 and 25 with these quotes from Isaiah 53. First, reminding us of our problem. We're sinners cut off from God and of the solution, Christ atoning death for sin. So what is our summons this morning? Here's our summons. Do you know Christ as Savior? And have you repented? And is the Holy Spirit alive in you? If you know Jesus as Savior, our summons is this. Is our holiness preaching the gospel along with our words? That's key. Is our holiness, is our lifestyle preaching the gospel along with our words? I'm going to close with this because I think it's such a powerful illustration. Several years ago, Christianity Today reported on a survey done by Fuller Theological Seminary. Fuller Theological Seminary had undergone about a 15-year study in a number of countries. They surveyed over 700 former Muslims. Now, this is not an easy thing to do. I'm not going to get into all the mechanics and logistics of how this is done. But they surveyed in over 30 countries over 700 former Muslims, 50 different ethnic groups, 700 former Muslims, actually about 750, 30 countries, 50 ethnic groups. 
ask him a variety of questions, how they had come to faith. I mean, you got to have translators and all this kind of stuff to do this kind of thing. But once they were convinced they had legitimate converts from Islam in these countries, they asked him a series of questions. And one of the questions had to do with, well, what was, you know, what was one of the biggest influences in you coming to faith and coming to faith in Christ? And one of the repeated answers over and over again, that one of the biggest factors in former Muslims who were saved was the lifestyle of Christians right around them and the lifestyles they were watching on a daily basis that had a huge impact on them coming to faith in Christ. 1 Peter 2.12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they might accuse you of wrongdoing, that will come they will still see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So friend, beloved, if you know Jesus, what is your life preaching right this day? And may that question linger with us this coming week and month. Father, we thank you for inspiring this short letter. We thank you, <laughs> very encouraging that someone like a Peter constantly put his foot in his mouth and said crazy things, became a mighty apostle. And that the Peter in the Gospels, once filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts, becomes a very different Peter. May that be an encouragement to us that you delight in using very normal vessels to do extraordinary things. Thank you for the example of his life. And, as far as we know, his willingness to be martyred for his faith. And so I pray for any here today who don't know Christ, that today might be the day of their salvation. And for those of us who do know Christ, that we would not just blow this off casually, but actually think about what is our lives, what are our lives showing? What do our attitudes show? What do our actions show? What do our reactions show? What is how we're using our money or treating our children or responding to our parents or whatever. What is it preaching to those watching us? And we pray this in Jesus' good and mighty name. Amen.